Let me read the text for us. We'll be in Ephesians 3. I'm reading from the ESV. If you want to read the same translation that I am, there's one in the back of the pew in front of you. You can uh, tap, type, or flip your way to Ephesians 3. Paul writes, and he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on your behalf, of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has, been, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Now, Paul has been building in all of chapter 2 this argument that the church consists of formerly alienated people who have been brought near, formerly far off people who have been brought near, formerly dead people who have been made alive. And, and these people, they are the church, okay? And so here in chapter 3, he's beginning to move in this discussion of, of kind of this message, and he's offering a prayer for them that he picks back up in verse 14. And in verse 10, he really starts hammering down on what the church is. Now, because of some things in our upcoming schedule, it's going to take us a couple of weeks to get back to Ephesians. And so you're just going to have to keep this especially fresh in your mind, okay? Put it in the Ziploc bag, put it in the freezer, and keep it safe and fresh for you when we come back to it. Now, look how he opens up this passage. He says, for this reason. What, what's this reason he's talking about? Well, you'll remember back in, in chapter 2, he says, look, you have been brought together. Jews and Gentiles have been united. And for us, in our application, we look at people across a variety of different uh, upbringings, ethnicities, races, socioeconomically, rich, old, I mean, you know, poor, young. I mean, all these things, all these groups have been brought together. They don't always have to be opposites, but all these people are brought together, and they are one where? In Christ. Everybody say, we are one in Christ. That's right. He says, so on the basis of this, I, Paul, a prisoner. Now look what he says here. This is decidedly interesting. Paul, oh man, he, he teaches us some amazing things about the call of God and his movement on our life in just this, this short uh, little passage here. He says, I, Paul, a prisoner of who? Or a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of what? You Gentiles. That's amazing. That's amazing. Paul has this decidedly others-centered faith. And so Paul's not in, in it just to see what he can get out of it. He's not invested in Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that others look at him and say, that's the guy we want to have over for Saturday night dinner. That's the guy we want to go to, to, to lunch with after church on Sunday. He is great, and occasionally he picks up the bill. I mean, it's even better. Like, Paul is not in this so that he can advance himself. He's not in this so that he can have people say all these amazing things about him. Look what he says. A prisoner, what? For Christ Jesus. Paul sees his suffering not as an extension of an edict of Rome. This is first and foremost. This is first and foremost. Paul sees the current suffering in his life 
as being entrusted to him by God. And that's a really difficult thing to wrap our minds around. That when we, when we go through suffering, we, we, we think in, in some sense that, that perhaps God has entrusted this suffering to us. But look what he writes here. He doesn't say that, that I'm suffering so that I can come through this better, so I can come through this more mature. He doesn't write and say that, that I'm suffering for these things. What he says in essence in this is I'm suffering on your behalf. I'm suffering on your behalf. Paul takes great joy in his suffering. Not that he knows he's going to come through it and have bigger spiritual muscles, but he takes great joy in this because it's on behalf of someone else. Paul has a decidedly other-centered faith. In fact, you can say that Paul, from the very beginning of his ministry, is, has had to be this other-centered faith. You remember how Paul converted for those of you who maybe you didn't grow up in church, in Acts chapter 9, you can read about Paul's amazing transformation. This is a guy who, before he came to Christ, had it all together. This is a guy that when, when, when other people in his profession wanted to point out at the, at the poster child, they wanted to look at the up-and-coming young star, they wanted to say, this is the guy who's going to take us somewhere. They would point at Paul. And Paul was zealous for his work. He was zealous for it. This is the guy that shows up early. This is the guy who works late. This is the annoying guy that works on the weekend and comes back Monday morning and talks about it. Somebody says, how's your weekend? You're like, hung out with wife and kids. And Paul's like, man, I've been following those reports. I've been nailing stuff and getting it done. I'm like four weeks ahead on spending reports. Like this is Paul in his former profession, his former way of life and existence. And what happened? God wrecked him. God intervened in the person of Jesus Christ when Paul was on this road to Damascus. Paul advancing. Paul seemingly working and orchestrating and doing things he thought God was leading him to. And what happens? He's on the road to Damascus. Jesus shows up and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul saw his former way of life come to nothing in the face of Jesus Christ. And from that moment on, he gave himself, not to persecuting the church, but to building it up in himself, being persecuted for its advancement. Paul, Paul gives us a beautiful pattern and map to follow. Not that we're seeking in Christianity to build ourselves up and become better than we are. Okay, everybody. Not that we seek to, to build ourselves up and become better than we are. We seek to be built up for the betterment of others. Do you see that? Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now look, he's trying to make this connection to them. Some of the people there in Ephesus he does not know, he has not come into contact with. So he writes to them, he says, look, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. He's going on in this same thing, this idea. This is, this is how Paul sees this, okay? Paul sees that God has entrusted to him a message. And what is that message? This proclamation, this salvation, that, that, that man and woman, rich or poor, we can all be reconciled and made one, as we've talked about, made the third race in Christ, right? Christians are the third race. In Christ, there is neither white nor black. There is neither rich nor poor, old or young. In Christ, all are one. Everybody say, we are one in Christ. 
And so he looks at it and he says, the stewardship, I'm assuming that you've heard of the task that was laid before me. And this is how he speaks of it. He doesn't say the punishment that was leveled upon me and this is how I have to make recompense to God because of what a woeful jerk I was. Because that's how some of us see it. Like, that's how some of us see the, the way that we're meant to walk out our Christian faith. And so if you were formerly a, a prostitute, if you were formerly a prideful jerk, if you were formerly a, a pimp, if you were formerly a drug pusher, then you look at yourself, some of you, after you come to faith, and you say, look, I have to live the rest of my life making recompense for the way that I have been. I have to live the rest of my life paying off this great debt that was before me. No, Jesus has paid it all. He has reconciled you. He has paid that debt. But what Paul sees here isn't this great mountain of debt that he has to somehow make restitution to, that somehow cosmically he was so wrong, so bent on persecuting God that when God saved him in Jesus Christ, that God said, now you've got to make up. You have to spend the rest of your life working for me to pay that debt off. That's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. That, friends, quite simply is religiosity, legalism to the worst degree. There is no way that we are able to pay off this great debt, and that's why God sent Jesus to pay the debt for us. Effectively, Paul has received this inheritance, and the way that he sees his ministry playing out is one of stewardship, that God bestowed on him this great gift. And what is this gift? The ability, the responsibility to proclaim widely that those who were formerly far off and dead had been brought near and made alive. And so we begin to ask this question of ourselves. What grace has God entrusted us? The question that each individual comes to in this, in terms of understanding, Paul is his paradigm for what it is to be a Christ follower. And Paul recognizes that he is a steward over the grace God has given him. And God comes to each of us as individuals and he bestows upon you some special grace, not for yourself, but for others. I have countless opportunity to, to speak to the members of this church about the way that God has moved in their lives. And one of the things that, that really makes me fall more and more in love with the people of this church is when I come across men and women that I say, why did you respond this way or why did you respond that way? In the midst of turmoil, why did you make this choice instead of that choice? And he said, because I, I, I recognized the position in place that God had put me in and how it would affect everybody else. I said, why do you choose to spend your money on this? Why did you live here as opposed to there? Why did you not leave? And they say, I recognize the responsibility and the grace God has entrusted to me and how it affects those around me. God calls us to be stewards of the grace that he gives us. And so what Paul would have us ask ourselves is, what particular grace has God given me to administer to those around me? Now look what Paul goes on here. He says, that the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. And then he goes on to say, he says, how the mystery was made known to me. By what purpose? By revelation. 
He says, look, I've written to you about this before. I've written briefly about this. Paul's message isn't something that he concocted. It's not something that he was fresh on the scene, and Paul's like, okay, I've got to come up with something shocking, something new for these people, something to really shake them from their lethargy, shake them from their, 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 their compassionlessness, to shake them from this, this feeling of just kind of status quo. No, Paul says, this came to me by revelation. We've got to stop there. Paul is indicating the way that God communicated to him. God communicates to us through his word, okay? And in church, when we gather corporately, through the application of his word, when we open up this text and we work through it. But what Paul says is that God reacts to him, relates to him in a decidedly different way. He he has related to him by process of revelation. So let's just put a pin in that and think about it for a second. Paul is, is building in this understanding and identity of what the text is, what the Bible is. Everybody, do you have a Bible? Can you hold it up and wave it around and fan the person beside you? Yeah. There you go. Thank you, Courtney. Bible. And so this, this Bible, this text that is given to you, there are a couple places that we can go to and find out what does Paul effectively think and, and other gospel writers think of the text. You can quit waving it around. Your arms are tired. 2 Timothy 3.16, look what Paul says about the word. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. You'll remember that when we went through 1, 2 Timothy, and Titus, we are driving at this idea, this ministry of the word. Paul has received this word by revelation. You and I don't. It's a primary distinction. You and I don't receive uh, direct special revelation from God. The canon is closed. There is no more adding to the text that is in our Bibles. Do you understand that? Now look, let's look at one more place. Second Peter. Just keep turning to the right. Probably just a few pages for you. Second Peter chapter 1. 20 and 21. We see this instructive word about the subject matter, effectively what the Bible is, what the text is, what prophecy is. 20 and 21, he says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of what? Of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Paul's saying this didn't, or Peter's writing, and effectively you could say he's saying this too of what Paul has written, that none of this came from their own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes, and the way that he addresses this is, God revealed things to him for others. And what God has entrusted to you and I is the collection of these things that God has revealed to Paul and to others, and he has given it, given it to us in his word for his purposes and not our designs. You see each and every week how men and women take and twist the word of God to suit their end, their designs. They lead people astray. But what Paul is writing here, and in fact, look at this next thing. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Paul is convinced that as men and women give themselves to the careful study of this, that they will come to know God. We come to know God and know his heart by investing ourselves in the word of God. And Paul tells them, he says, look, when you read this, when you read this letter 2,000 years ago, roughly, when they were reading this letter to them from Paul's heart as carried along by the Holy Spirit, do you see that? Then they will perceive 
his insight in the mystery, reading the text, engaging in the text, hearing the text read aloud, produces in us spiritual maturity. I was reading a book recently, and the author was talking about uh, Bible intake, scripture intake, and he breaks it into a couple of different areas. But within this first section where he's talking about Bible intake, he's, he's referencing some statistics. And I'm not a huge fan of statistics to kind of cloud things. But, it, but it's pretty sad. And so he was quoting a USA Today poll, and he was saying the percent of Americans that read their Bible on a daily basis. He said it's about 11%. About 11% of Americans read their Bible on a daily basis. Honestly, I was very uh, surprised by this. And so he says, look, but not everybody is a, a, a Christian, right? And so this is just Americans broadly. Let's bring it down to the church. And some of you are thinking, 50%. 50, can I have 55? Can I have 55? Can I have 60? Can I have 60? No, I mean, so like, this is kind of what you're thinking. The number's just going to ramp up. No, he said, in fact, that when uh, average Pusit or people that consider themselves born-again Christians, 18%. 18% read their Bible on a daily basis. That's shocking. It's not surprising, but it's shocking. It's disheartening. But you know what's the most disheartening? He asked people, born-again Christians, he said, what, what percentage of this, of this group doesn't read their Bible at all? 23%. quarter of the people in this room. Four of us went and knocked on that door earlier. One of the four statistically speaking, and Mitzi and, and, and others are looking down, but statistically speaking, and we can say it's my son because he doesn't read. Statistically speaking, one of those four doesn't read the word. You know, one of the reasons we don't have revival break out in the churches of our country, I'm not talking about revival across our country. Churches of our country need revival. If revival comes to the churches, revival will follow as far as God wants to carry it. But you know, one of the reasons revival doesn't break out in the churches because we have profound access. We have more access to the word of God than we've ever had before. I've got it on my phone, I've got it on my iPad. I can get emails and text messages every day about this. We put it on our sign, it's here. You see it on some menus and places you go to eat. The reason we don't see revival break out is because the men and women of the church, we don't think it's important. We don't hunger and thirst for these things because we don't give ourselves to these things. I'm not saying this to make you feel bad. I'm saying this so it'll put fire in your stomach and you'll feel challenged to invest yourself in the word of God. If you want to see change, give yourself to investing time and energy into the study of God's word. You know what this is? This is a collection that God put together for your betterment so that you might grow in holiness so that lost men and women might come to know him and many of us treat it like a bookend the special thing that we dig out on Sundays that we search for. Paul writes to them and he says, as you read this, you will perceive my insight. As you and I give ourselves to the study of God's word, he is growing us in spiritual maturity. He's growing us in Christ-likeness. And we're coming across things and saying, I wish I had never done what that preacher told me to do and read this because now I've got to come face to face with do I believe in Jesus? And so as we come across things, we either choose Jesus or we choose our habits. We choose Jesus or, or this thing that makes us comfortable. We choose Jesus or our money. 
Jesus or our families and our worshiping and making idols of them? Jesus or food and making an idol of it for many of us? That's what he says here. When you read this, you can perceive my insight in the mystery of Christ. Kind of relating on this on the same deal and, 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 and thinking of the absolute hubris of being able to come on a Sunday morning and getting enough of God that it will carry you for seven days. D.L. Moody had this to say. He said, a man can no more take in a supply of grace for the future than he can eat enough for the next six months. Have any of you tried to do that? I've seen some of you at the Chinese buffet. It certainly looks that way. He says, or take, uh, or take sufficient air into his lungs at one time to sustain life for a week. I challenge you to try that. He finishes, he says, we must draw upon God's boundless store of grace from day to day as we need it. God's grace is found in his word. We experience that anew each time we read it, each time we study it. Let us be a people of the book. Now look here. Paul says that he's received this insight into the mystery of Christ. And then he goes on and he says, This mystery, it it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to us holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul is continuing this idea. He said, look, we didn't invent this uh, long ago. And you can read in 1 Peter, they longed to see this. They longed to see the fruition of these things that they thought that they knew were coming. Paul says, now his holy, his holy apostles and those proclaiming his word are walking in the reality of what has finally been realized. The mystery that Paul speaks about there is the fact that, that from long ago, God had planned to send his son to redeem sinful, lost, dead humanity. And he says, we, we walk in the light of that revelation, this thing which God held in abeyance, he has brought near and made readily available and apparent to us today. And look what else he goes on to say about the mystery. He gives us a different angle, a different shade of it in verse 6. He says, this mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul has delivered such amazingly good news to this local body there in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2 that he just has to keep coming back to it. He's effectively reminding them that they have jointly won the salvation lottery together. They have jointly won this thing together. He's, he's continuing to draw on these images and, and this language that evokes union, that evokes being brought and knit together. So look at the first thing he says here. He says this mystery, this mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs. Gentiles are our fellow heirs. They've been brought together. They are co-heirs. They have been made full brothers with the Jew. Now, Paul has something to say about this in Galatians. Galatians 3, 26 through 29, he's, he's still trying to drive in this idea that there is absolutely no division. For every division you seemingly create in your mind, Paul just slaps you and says no. And you say the next one, he slaps you, and he says no. And you say another one, he slaps you and says, are you really so slow? No. Look at Galatians 3. He says, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God, or children of God, through what process? Faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on, you wear Christ. 
There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 29, he says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, ha, heirs according to the promise. What is that promise? Genesis 12, 1 through 3. I will bless you, God says to Abram, and I will make you a blessing to others. In Jesus, the Gentile and the Jew together are heirs. Together they're heirs. This is great news. This is good news for you and I. That whether you have come to faith in the last week or you came to faith 50 years ago, that we are all together one, right? This is the picture he gives. When Paul wants to talk about the church, he talks about it in terms of unity, of of singularity. Interestingly, when God is described in, in, in the Old Testament, frequently it says the Lord our God is one, echad. He is radically different. He is holy other, one, singularity. The church is wholly other. If you're to walk out in the community and meet somebody who has a new concept of church and say, I'm a part of that body, we are one, it sounds kind of weird. It sounds kind of weird that a teenager and an octogenarian, an 80-year-old or a 90-year-old will walk hand-in-hand down the street and somebody says, are you, you know, grandmother, grandson? No, we are one in the body of Christ. We are fellow heirs together of the promise that has been made available to us. There is no distinction between us. Now look what he says next. He says, you're fellow heirs. Then he goes on, he says, you're members of the same body. Now this is getting interesting. This is getting interesting. It'd be as if Tom McAllister and I sat down and, and I said, Tom, we're members of the same body. And Tom says, wow, you know, I remember, and I, Matt, did, were you ever part of a church and people would hold hands across the aisle? I said, yes, I remember that. We'd hold hands across the aisle. My palms swept profusely so people on the other side would plan next week not to sit beside me. And we would sing, well, I'm so glad I'm a part of it. You remember that song? Yeah. Or we sing some other such song, and we grab hands, and we sway back and forth. Do you know what that is? That is a paltry picture of being one and being of the same body. You know why? Into that song, we drop hands. Some of us very gladly. Those bonds can be split. Those bonds can be broken easily. Those are temporary bonds that pale in comparison to the imagery used here. Now say Tom and I got together and we said, we really want to show people, Tom more than I, because I'm afraid of surgery, that we are all a part of the same body. And so we go in and we see a doctor that Jim Sandin knows, and this guy has been disbarred because this procedure is illegal. And we go in there and, and we say, look, we want to show people we're part of the same body. I want you to start at my toes and end at my shoulder and sew us together. I want, you to sh- I want you to sew us together, and then I want you to take some of my organs and put it in him, and I want you to really unite us. And, and, and Tom and I, we say we can make it on a heart and a half. So let's cut his heart in half. <laughs> Just in case this thing doesn't go right. That's the picture he's getting at. We're members of the same body, so one person cannot hurt in a vacuum. One person cannot rejoice in a vacuum. You want to know why, why it's such a big deal gossip and grumbling because we're all a part of the same body so when there's discord in one area of the body the whole thing is affected the whole thing is affected unity is so radically important to the health and vitality of a body and that's why paul uses that imagery there 
It says we're all members of the same body. And we recognize, even to make this more difficult, that we're members of a body that is so far beyond the walls of Ridgecrest. We're members of the same body of churches all across this community, but we manifest that locally. How glorious is that? That we're members of one body of believers here in Greenville, Texas, and in the Philippines, and in China, and in Europe. In Deep Ellum, we're all members of the same body. And you and I, we are charged with the responsibility of manifesting that here to the residents of Greenville, Texas, as Ridgecrest seeks to display this beautiful, beautiful picture. He says you're heirs, he says you're members of the same body. And then he, he says, and I think the ESV muddies the waters on this a little bit, he says effectively you are fellow partakers of the promise. Your fellow heirs, your fellow members of the same body, and your fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. And by what agency have all these things taken place, friends? It is through the gospel. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, they have been made one. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, they all have one end. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, they all have one body. And through the gospel of Jesus Christ, they have access through one, to one promise, through Jesus' body and blood. Look back at 113, Ephesians 113. He says, in him, you also, you too, you also heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed when you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Jews, Gentiles, you and I, one. We are partakers of the same Holy Spirit, not a distant cousin Therein. Do you get that? Do you see that? There is one Holy Spirit, and we are all fellow partakers together of that. Now, Paul goes through this, and he really wants them to understand his role in their life, and consequently their, life, their role in the lives of others. And so this is how he ends in verse 7. He says, it is of this unifying radicalizing, bringing together, making co-heirs, co-members, and co-partakers. It is of this gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, of which I was made a, my translation says minister, but the word translated there stems from the word servant. It's from where we get our, our word deacon. Deacons are what? They are servants in the local church Paul is not seeking to build himself up, but he says, I am a servant according to the gift of God's grace. The gift of God's grace in Paul's life has made him a suffering servant, just as our Savior was, looking at Isaiah. Paul sees how this gift of grace was working in him. And look, he says, this gift of grace was given to me by the working of his power. The power of God at work and the life of the Christian creates, gives to them, infuses them with grace for salvation, but it imparts to them grace for someone else. The only way to live a life as a follower of Jesus Christ is to follow Paul's dictum there in Philippians. And seeing others is more important than yourselves. And look what Paul gives us here in 3, 1 through 7. God's grace was given to him for those in Ephesus. It is by God's power that Paul is made a minister, a servant of the gospel. And who is it for? 
it is for others. Paul gives us this beautiful picture in 3, 1 through 7 that the gospel is saving us for the benefit of someone else. And so the question before us is, God, what grace do you give to me in this place for someone else? God, what calling have you placed upon my life for someone else? God, what gift are you giving me of your grace in making me a servant to bless them, to reach them, to disciple them, to minister to them? Let us pray. Father, this morning we thank you for your grace which saves us. And God, I thank you for that grace that you give us for others. God, help us not to see the gospel as as this thing which we selfishly hold, but God, help us to see this gospel as, as something we are entrusted with for the benefit of others. I pray for our hearts in this place this morning. Quicken our hearts. Wreck our pride, our selfishness. And give us a desire that could only come from you to be joined together with, with people we don't particularly like, care for, or share the same interests with. And I recognize in the power of your Holy Spirit that you are able to accomplish that. God, help us to show the unifying power of the gospel to those in our community because of the working of your power in our midst. And Father, we pray this morning for those who have yet to surrender to the gospel. Now that you are seeking to, to bring them in, to make them too fellow heirs, to make them too members of the same body, to make them too partakers of the same gift, the same spirit. So God, I pray that you would convict them of sin. They would recognize themselves as as sinful, as separated from your love and the power of the gospel. But that they would believe that your son came and that he bled, that he died, and that he rose again so they might experience the forgiveness of their sins. And they might join with us in being part of the fellowship of the saints. Father, I thank you for this time and the study of your word and pray that you would continue to move in our midst as we worship you in song. Those things which we learned in your word, God, I pray that we'd be proclaiming to you now in our hearts, through our mouths, and in song. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.